Welcome to episode 214 of Control the Controllables. And it's a big hello from Melbourne, Australia, as we move into week two and the quarterfinal stages here at the Australian Open 2024. And the weather has cooled down after an extremely hot first few days at the Open. The crowds continue to grow. The intensity is rising as we get closer to finding out who our champions are. And we also have the champions of the future that are playing, whether it's Hannah Klugman from Great Britain, who is an exciting star to watch, or as we saw at last year's Australian Open, Mira Andriva, who has then had an incredible run to the last 16 here in the real event. There's so much tennis to watch. And if you want to know who we picked, our star panellist here at Control the Controllables, episode 213, you'll be able to see our picks, see how we're doing. And you maybe might even be able to check out my little dark horse for the women's title, who may or may not still be going. And there's certainly been lots of banter flying around on the WhatsApp group with the panellists. And my dark horse is in the quarterfinals, but they're not giving me that as success yet. So before I move into today's fantastic guest, uh, I just want to have a, a last little shout out. If you get two minutes, if you feel that we deserve it, we will leave a link in the show notes because we have been shortlisted for the Sports Podcast Awards to be the best racket sports podcast of the year. It's an award that is very special to us. It's an award that, yeah, if you feel that... We do deserve a vote. If you take a lot from these episodes, then we would, would truly appreciate you giving a couple of minutes of your time to show your support for us. And as for today's guest, he's he's a cracker, actually. He's someone who I've known for, for many, many years. Anyone in the tennis world who has come across Colin Fleming will know what a great guy he is, first and foremost. You know, he's now a, doing a, a fantastic job as a broadcaster on, on many different radio and TV stations. And he was as high as number 17 in the world as a men's doubles player. Uh, he's got a, a different story, but a story that I think is important to be told because you'll hear me talking a lot about role modeling in tennis. And we often pick the superstars that we see on the TV. Well, Colin Fleming... You'll see from his story, he went a different way around and it wasn't always a direct way to being a top 20 player in the world. And he even called it a day at one point. And for him to talk through that in such good detail, he was a partner of Andy Murray at various stages of his career. And I won't tell you how many control the controllable guests he's played doubles with because that is part of the episode. But it is a few, and he shares some stories on, on those, and we, we delve into the future of tennis. We delve into many different topics, and I know you're going to love it. So I'm going to pass you over to Colin Fleming. So Colin Fleming, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, Dan. Thank you. Great to be uh, great to be on with you. Um, 
I was wondering if I might ever get the call. So uh, here we are. We're, we're on the, the other side of the world, but uh, great to be with you. You've been on a long list for for a long time. You know, this list has just been kind of whittled away. Um, but I heard with your technical issues, I also thought maybe we weren't going to get it going today. So finally, you got the Zoom working. And I guess a man of your stature now, Flembo, you don't normally have to deal with your own technological issues. If only that were true, Dan. If only that were true. And listen, if you're running out of people and you've ended up at me, it's okay. You can just tell me. <laughs> and uh, we're both in Melbourne, which is pretty cool, you know. And uh, I think anybody in the in the tennis world that goes to Melbourne once in January, I think always wants to be here because it's just this time of year. It's the Aussie summer. There's there's so much going on. I think Europe's kind of the place to avoid in in these months. So how's how's your Melbourne experience been over over the last couple of weeks? Look, Melbourne, it's just uh, it's absolute pleasure, isn't it? Coming down here at this time of year, as you say, it's freezing cold at home. I think it was minus eight uh, on the car the other day when my wife was taking the kids to school. So I'm trying not to send too many pictures mm-hmm. home, that's for sure. But uh, Look, it's a great time of year to come, but um, the nice thing is, been coming, been coming to Melbourne for for so long now that I kind of feel not at home, but very familiar with the place. So I'm almost like pretending I live here for a couple of weeks when I come, rather than doing the tourist thing and seeing the sights. Um, but it's more than just the weather, isn't it? I mean, the Australian Open, the, the lead up events are great, but the Australian Open now is just quite. It's incredible what it's become. Even it's unrecognizable, unrecognizable from when I first started coming. Just yep. the changes that they made to the site, um, everything they do for the fans, and now coming here as part of the the TV broadcast. I mean, we get we get so well looked after. Um, the tennis has been phenomenal, I think, so far. And uh, I've got about what well, I think I've got five or six more days of covering it, Dan. So uh, just looking forward to 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 doing a good job over those days, and then it'll be back to the the cold in Scotland. And as we we get to the business end, I had a little look look beforehand because I thought there's been in the men's side. I was like, oh my goodness, how many five setters? It feels like every match has gone down to the wire. Certainly the the evening matches as people are kind of starting to consider going to bed. And I had a little look, and there's been. 29 so far, and I thought, okay, well, it, is that a lot? I'm not sure. So I looked at it and. Over the last six Grand Slams, the average is actually 24 over the tournament. So we are above average on that. It, it feels as if as we get towards the end of the tournament. And I, so I thought that often doesn't bring five setters. And I looked at that. The average is actually only two per tournament in the second week of a Grand Slam. And people are talking. We bring this question up in the quick fire round normally. But I'm going to ask you now. Men's tennis, three sets or five? Um, that's a great question, isn't it? Because it's a loaded question. Can I justify my answer, or do you just want a Perhaps, quick answer? No, no, you can justify away. Look, I think I think um, it's the ultimate test, best of five in the slams. And I think the nice thing is, as long as we play best of five, we can somewhat compare eras. So we can say what Djokovic is doing now is comparable to players that have gone before because it's the same format of the game. Um, so I think I'm I think I'm still best of five, but I'm maybe not as strong on that as I might have been a couple of years ago. Because working in the sport from a you know a, a broadcast side now um, and as a fan as well, the sport's getting very long. 
Um, it's getting very slow. I think that, you know, I don't necessarily sit here with all the solutions, but I think all the evidence is out there that the average length of matches is going up. And it's great if you've got time to sit and digest a full sort of five-setter, isn't it? But, you know, it's it's tough to sit down for five hours. I mean, I've commentated on two matches uh, already here, Dan, that were four hours 59. Yeah, it's a long time. Um, and they're epics, but it's a long time, isn't it? So I'm best of five. Uh, I'm still in that boat. But um, I think I think that we've got to look at maybe just trying to speed things up a little bit again. Yeah, and it's certainly a long time when it finishes at 3.39 a.m. You know, that's that's completely mental, you know. And I think I think that where my – I know a lot of people have said second week make it five sets. And like I say, those stats show quite often the second week doesn't bring the five-set thrillers that, we, that we're after. I did see a, a tweet from Mark Petchy yesterday or maybe even earlier on today saying that, look, we can't lose – the history and the tradition of the five sets, but we have to find a way of people not sitting on their backsides for so long in between change of ends, not taking so long in between points. Obviously as coaches, we're trying to teach our players, use your time, use your routines, but as a spectacle, that certainly drags it out. Yeah. And I think you look at some, you look at two players that come to mind for me, um, Daniel Medvedev, who watched last night. I mean, he's, he's getting to the line with, 20 seconds still on the shot clock. Yeah. Andre Rublev as well. You know, they play with such flow, such, such a rhythm. Um, I think the shot clock has slowed things down. Um, it's still very subjective when the umpires start that. The reality is it's probably more like 30, 35 seconds. I would yeah. say it's probably an average 30 seconds between points most matches. And it's supposed to be a 25 second, you know, rule. So I think that needs addressed. That slowed things down. Even things like after one love, play, play was supposed to be continuous it's now at least a one minute sort of changeover it, the whole game has just has just really slowed down and you're right from coaches and players point of view you want to use that time to optimize your performance don't you but um i find it frustrating but look i don't want to sit here and kind of be negative about it because uh, the tennis is phenomenal the reason we're getting the five setters is because the, the depth in the game has never been better um i think the level of the sport continues to increase yeah big believer that the sort of the champions of tomorrow are better than the champions of today. Um, I really feel that, you know, that the players are going to continue to take the game to a, to a new level. So that's exciting, but I think we just got to try and keep things fresh, keep things punchy and moving when we get these matches going. Yeah. It certainly feels like the gap is not as big as it's ever been. You know, it feels like, I mean, look at all of the seeds that are falling. Look at the young guns that are coming through. We often see it start of the year, you know, I always think that's an interesting time. You know, people have finished 2023, maybe played the Davis Cup finals in Malaga, maybe played the Billie Jean King Cup finals in Seville, maybe not 100% prepared mentally or physically. I think we saw that with Jess Pagula probably, you know, overplayed in 2023, where some of these young guns have maybe been having a bit, a little bit longer to prepare and still have that kind of freshness. And often as the year goes on, it steadies into the names that we know. But I just want to take you now, Flembo, before we start looking into you, your your story as we as we always do on the podcast. You mentioned the broadcasting and you do a great job. And I'm not just saying that, you know, I always, always enjoy your commentary. 
I've I've I love on court interviews. It's something I think Jim Currier brought to us a few years ago at the Australian Open, and I've seen you've been doing that as well this year. So tell me about that. You know how how's that been going? How are you preparing for that? How do you get your questions right? You know you're dealing with a player. I guess what I love about it is you're dealing with a player right at that moment where the emotion is high, that raw emotion, and you can you can get some little gems out of them because of that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's not something I've got a huge amount of experience with, Dan, if I'm honest with you. Um, I think I first started doing that here in Australia. They do a lot of stuff with the broadcast here that's uh, a lot of fun, actually. Um, you know, I work as a freelancer mainly on, on sort of world feeds in, in, in the sport, do a lot for the ATP Tour, work here in Australia, US, USTA for the US Open and for the BBC at Wimbledon, etc. But here in Australia, they, they like to do a bit different. So we do a lot of courtside commentary. So we've got two commentators in the in the in the booth. I'll be courtside. I've, I've tended to get that role a, a fair amount, and that tends to come with doing the on-court interview as well. So um, I feel more comfortable doing it now than when I first did. Let me tell you that I used to sort of be like you know mind blanking because I didn't yeah. want to stand there with a bit of paper and look like a complete rookie. Um, so I, I felt quite I felt quite rigid with my uh, I had my pre-prepared questions and I was going to stick to those, but I think. The, the best advice I've had and the best interviewers is a little bit more of a discussion. Yeah. So I tried to go in there with, um, I tried to strike the balance between being pre-prepared and going with the actual conversation and the interview as well. Now, um, hopefully that comes across, but I'll probably have uh, uh, three, four questions up my sleeve, tend to ask them a very standard first question about the match or how they're feeling to have achieved something for the first time or whatever it might be. Um, I try to get something specific about the match because I don't just want to go on there and ask them straight away about their latest Instagram story. Or you know, I like to I like to hear something from them about the match. So, for example, we're recording this the day after Cam Norrie's great win, aren't we, against Casper uh, Ruud? And, and he yeah. came to the net so many times, and he was mixing in the drop shot. So I wanted to ask him about that. You know, I wanted to yeah. hear from him about his game, and then you know, I try and have maybe take it off the back of where they go. Uh, um, or, or stick to some pre-prepared questions about possible next opponents, possible fun stuff they've been doing about the city. But try and keep it, try and ask the, the relevant questions to the match ultimately and not just be too prepared and robotic with like, I'm going to ask you this no matter what's happened. So look, I'm, I'm, I'm still considering myself inexperienced. I'm getting more relaxed with doing it. Um, I enjoy it. So uh, I appreciate the kind words. I'll, I'll keep trying to keep trying to improve on that one. And where do you take this one? So I was I was doing a little bit of commentary the other night, the Manorino Shelton match, and and as it finished, uh, I don't know the name of the guy, an Aussie guy came on the court and he said to Manorino, "Good question. You know, look, you're 35 years old. In the last 12 months, you've won more tournaments and had more success than the previous 12 years. What's the secret?" And he said, "Tequila." And it was, and it was like in the encore interview. You could see was like, oh, where, where does this now go? You know, and he wasn't quite sure. So I'm putting that to you. You got Manorino in front of you. You ask him that, and he tells you that tequila is the reason for his for his turn in form over the last twelve months. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's where, like I say, you've got to you've got to be listening to what the player is saying. You can't just have your set questions because yeah. that will really throw you if you're just like, oh, I just want a good answer and move on to my next question. So 
where would I have taken that? I probably would have taken that, tried to try to make a joke. It means a fun situation, right? You gotta have some fun with them and maybe say, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see you in the in on the beach bar after the match or something like that, you know? Um have a bit of fun with it because yeah, it can it can throw you. It really can. And your worst nightmare in that situation is like a one-word answer. You sort of think, if I ask them that and they just say yes, or you know, whatever. But the reality is it's or like, tequila. You know, they wanna they they yeah, they they wanna they want to look good. They want the crowd to come into it. Um, so most of the players are, are very, very good and, and and sort of even help you out if you find yourself in a little bit of a hole. So on the whole, I've not had too many more or any bad experiences yet. And I'm hoping that lasts. Keep up the good work on that. I think it's brilliant. I think that's the sort of stuff for me that actually brings eyeballs to our sport as well. You know, I think these these type of answers, like I loved Cam as well, talking, you know, getting the crowd involved and telling them they've obviously enjoyed their beers in, on the Saturday afternoon. Yeah. You know, these, this opens up, these sort of things are, are what opens up the, the more normal, casual fan into the sport. So I think, I think you do a great job. The guys do as you open do, but I now need to take you back. I need to take you back to, to a cold country where we're in the summer here in Melbourne, but Life didn't start in the sun for you, you know. Life started, I believe, in Scotland. I believe you're born and bred. Um, obviously, had a, had a successful playing career yourself. But give us a little overview, you know. How how did tennis get into your world? How did tennis get into your blood? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, absolutely right. Born and raised in Scotland in a, a town called Lunlithgow, just, uh, just west of, of Edinburgh and the central belt between Edinburgh and Glasgow. And crucially, within about a 30 minute uh, drive from Stirling, University of Stirling. So uh, I'll take you all the way back and try and fly through it. But um started at my local club. My dad was, uh, you know, a member. He was on the tennis committee and um, he loved to play. I've got an older brother, four years older, uh, Michael, who, who some people might know, played, got, got to a sort of county level for the north of Scotland. And an older sister, Laura, who also played county tennis. And she's six years older. So I always had lots of people to play with. Uh, I was always hanging around the club. Um, my dad, actually, I remember the back of our house. Um, I was always, you know, begging someone to take me to play tennis. We had a set of sort of uh, split level house. So there was quite a big wall at the back and he took away the whole lawn and paved it. And we drew a net on the back of the house. And I still think that, and I still think like, why did I end up kind of with the skill set I've got at the net volume. Yep. And I think it was a lot of spending time on that wall after 100%. school every day playing on that, you know, gave me that feel for that sort of stuff. But anyway, to, I, I digress because I then really went through sort of um, playing, playing locally, got picked up quite early into central district, which covered uh, sort of North of where I lived through up to Sterling, Dunblane, crucially, um, you know where this is going, but at that time, Judy Murray was obviously the district coach, central district coach. Um, I still remember she had a little, I think it was like a Vauxhall Astra with the central district tennis sticker in the back window. <laughs> and uh, we started going to maybe one session a week. That was that was at Sterling University. I think the indoor court stand were built there in 1994, if I'm not mistaken. I might be a they've, year. They've got out some use way. out of them, those courts, huh? My goodness, unbelievable. Oh my goodness. But I mean, what they've what they've... I mean, it's the perfect storm because that's where we trained, you know, myself, yeah. Andy, Jamie. And then eventually Judy went on to be the national coach. I moved through that journey and, you know, David Brewer, uh, um, Jamie Baker uh, on the boys' side, uh, you know, a lot of players, Karen Patterson, you'll remember, uh, 
you know, Nicholas Slater. We had a whole load of Scottish players. Apologies to anyone that listens to this and I've left you out because we had a great group. I kind of moved through that, Dan. But I wasn't like a standout international junior like a lot of these, even some of the names I've named there were or or a lot of professional players end up being. I was a sort of very good Scottish level, uh, decent British level junior. Um, to give you a feel, I think I lost first round of 18s nationals and made the final of the consolation, something like that. You know, I was, I was okay. Um, I played a, a handful of ITFs in my time, but I never really thought I was going to have a career in the professional game. And I, I went from, from school to Stirling University again here on a, on a scholarship. And I kind of developed quite late physically. And that's where my level really improved through that physical development and working hard on the course there with Ewan McGinn was the coach still is, uh, or is still around that that yeah. setup. He's now working for Tennis Scotland. but um, And it was two or three years into my degree that I really started to make an impact on futures and and then, you know, went from there. To, initially took a couple of years out to play full-time. Got to a decent level, got to about 316 singles, 118 doubles. But I was absolutely miserable, Dan. I was, I was totally burnt out, depressed, didn't really think I was going to make it, traveling alone. Maybe I was just too young, too. I don't know. Um, but I decided to to basically stop playing altogether, go back, finish my degree, get a job, which which I did. This was in 2006, seven. It was only about 10 months into a graduate job, uh, Dan, where I decided I want to give tennis a proper go. Yeah. So I came back in, in 2008 and played all the way through to 2016 full-time and managed to make my way on the main sort of tour playing doubles and... Um, that was that was kind of my playing journey. I I, I still pinch myself that it actually happened because uh, I just I just followed a passion. I wasn't sort of setting out to be a pro. I just love the game. Still do love the game, and I've I've sort of gone on from from there. Twenty seventeen uh, January seventeen, I took up a role with tennis Scotland when I first started stopped playing. Still kept a bit of commentary on the side because I've always enjoyed it. I'd started it while I was while I was sort of in the last couple of years of my playing career. Uh, and since finishing with with tennis Scotland, I've gone pretty much full time into the the commentary and the broadcast side, and and here we are today. So uh, it's been quite a journey. Consider myself very lucky to to still be following a passion, like I say, and uh, and working in the sport. I don't need to ask you anything else. You've told us it all. <laughs> Apologies for that, but I just want to. Yeah, it's a no, it's journey. A, but it feel is. free, far away. Any questions? Uh, it's quite a quite a uh, different uh, journey, but it is. And 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 I, and I think the thing for me, Flembo, and why. I have been so keen on getting you on is I think it's the perfect role model story. And anyone that regularly listens to control the controllables knows I'm big on this as much as I love Carlos Alcaraz and Igor Shiontek. I think they're a problem for parents and youngsters because they are role models. Of course they are because of the way they handle themselves, the way that they are. They're fantastic young people who, you know, just, but they're also generational talents, you know, and it's not the story. It's not the story that you can copy and paste yet. We kind of hold ourselves to that and then always feel like we're, we're failing, you know, whereas we take your story and there's so many things I want to jump into from what you've said and hopefully I'll be able to do it. I will be able to do it in a way that people take a lot from, but, that is more normal. You know, you've picked up a sport, you've, you've, and that's probably the starting point for me. I've got a big thing on third child syndrome. I was the third of four. 
and and I feel there is a bit of an advantage there because you start things a bit earlier. You know, you yeah. you know your 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 brother or your sister are doing things and. I'm quite big on constraints led approach. And I think when you're the third child, you're naturally developing skills without knowing you are because they're, they're throwing balls around and you at age one are trying to catch balls and do this, but that might come a little bit later if you're the first child. So that's the first bit that I picked up on and I had a little smile. I thought, great, that fits into my theory, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> probably 90% doesn't, but that's okay. We'll forget that. The second bit is I, I listened to a, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listened to a podcast about three or four years ago that really kind of struck with me. And it was all about constraints led approach. And this guy had gone around, I guess, and become an expert in that field. And he talked about how the issue in households nowadays is that parents are always saying, no, they want to have, whereas actually the best developmental playground is actually a messy house, a house where kids are able to do what they want, and, and which obviously is going to be a line. But I think what you described on the wall was exactly like mine. I remember like watching, pretending I was Steffi Graf or Stefan Edberg or Boris Becker, and we actually had grass on my on our wall, so I couldn't really let it bounce. So if I did let it bounce, it was a bad bounce. So the dexterity and all of those little things that you, you had to do to pick the ball up or pretend I was Boris Becker diving to make a, 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 a an angled volley or whatever it might be. And my son, I remember we had a fireplace when we were young, and he always would have a, a soft ball and be hitting the ball off above the fireplace. And my wife would go, you can't do that. And when she was out, I was just like, no, no, he, he, I'm going to let him do it because I'm, I'm yeah. literally like watching him have to open the racket face and change the angle and do this. And actually my son now plays tennis. And the one thing he has that not many kids his age have is he has a nice slice. He has real nice feel at the net. And and I'm absolutely convinced that comes from the environment that, that you're in. And I, I guess you as a, if I'd throw that back to you a little bit, you as a, someone who is, is a very good coach. And again, you, you won't say it, but you, the, your reputation as a coach is, is also very good. And that's someone I want to get to a, a little bit down the line as a coach. And as somebody who has an impact, has a voice within Scottish tennis, What's your solution for that? Because I know Judy was also big on skill development with you guys at a young age, whereas maybe the game's gone a little bit more repetition volume, you know, only play tennis when you've got a coach on court, and we've maybe lost a little bit of that. Yes, I mean, a lot of interesting points. I'm almost sitting here as a as a father of a, a nine-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old son. I'm almost reflecting on things as you talk there as well, and... Uh, I definitely think it, it shaped me. I mean, I was the same when I was young. We had this, we, we used to play short tennis then, didn't we? The sponge balls yeah. and the plastic brackets. And I talk about the wall outside, but if it was raining, I'd be inside playing against the sort of living room wall and yeah. hitting balls and just had that passion for it. Um, I think j just bring it back to my own kid's journey. My, my daughter now is really into her gymnastics and I, I love, I love watching her. She's just in the house, just cracking on doing it in the same way I was just got that passion and I, we, we've now got this gymnastics beam in, beam in the hall, which I'm sure I'm going to trip over one night in the in the yeah. middle of the night. I'm going to come down and go head over heels on this thing. But I love just leaving it out there and letting her play. And probably not as a, probably not as athletically as she does. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, she lands on her feet. I'll be landing on my head. I'm sure. But um, 
yeah i think i think the environment in in that respect is uh is really important i think you know you mentioned judy there i mean i think it's fair to say she was big on uh well, skills over drills, I'm sure she would probably put it or something like that, where it was it was more about like setting setting tasks or set, setting situations and, and figuring out ways to to solve it rather than being taught how to hit a lob or something like that. It was like, you know, figuring out and, and, and being yeah. in that situation and having to develop that skill. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think... I think it's an interesting one because I think your point about Alcaraz and, and Sinner and... I would say Andy Murray, you know, coming from from Scotland, who's a world number one. I totally get your point that um, it's hard to relate to people that are that far yep. ahead of everyone else, that far above everyone else. But I, I do think if you could try and I think when you're young, of course, you have to dream. But I think you can understand that these these players have put in a, so much hard, smart work as well, you know, to develop their games and follow their passion. It's not like they just get there by just, you know, nobody teaches them anything and they just, they just play and they're eventually going to get there. You know, it's still to this day, the amount of work and dedication they put in is, is quite extraordinary. You know, it's uh, so I think understanding that, that they're normal people as well. They are, but they, they just, you know, they have that ability and sort of passion and capacity for the work and the ability to do things quickly, I, I think is, is important to understand. To jump in on that, I, I, I'm completely with that. And just to, I guess, clarify my point, I think my point is more around there's there's layers of success and there's different success measures. For me, you have had an incredibly successful tennis career. And and it's now it's now taken you to to Melbourne and the and the, the the heights of the game in a broadcasting capacity. You've you've worked with Andy, you know, you've worked on the Billie Jean King Cup team, you've worked at the very highest levels as a coach, as a broadcaster, and as and as a player. You probably don't have the same bank balance as Carlos Alcaraz, you know, but it's like it it's I, I think it's important that people know that there's many ways to succeed in this journey and in this sport. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, right. and it's yeah. That, yeah. and that's I think the point that I'm I've certainly am trying to bring through within these podcasts of of saying, look, there's all of these different stories. If you get your head down you work hard at something, you have passion, you have determination, you throw your heart and soul at it. it there's, it, you almost can't not succeed, you know, and so, yeah. but su su success will look very different to, to every different individual. And that's the point I'm making on, on the role modeling of someone like yourself. I think it's a really important role modeling story. It's certainly not putting down what these amazing athletes and, and yeah, young people yeah, are achieving. And I, well. I agree with you, Dan. I, I sit here and think that what I achieved in the sport is achievable for, for so many others. I, I really, I, I don't, I don't see myself as like I was anything special. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I had a good career in the sport. A big, a big moment for me is a lot of it's, Dan, I think to do with you, your own self belief and where you see yourself going, and then also the people you have in your circle, if you like. It might be a coach, it might be a parent, it might be your best pal, it might be a girlfriend or a wife or whoever it is that helps you to really believe in yourself. I mean, for me, the the, the biggest uh, standout person and and moment for me was when I first first ever met Louis Kai. Dan was when mm -hmm. when my sort of whole career changed. It was it was Jamie Murray and I, 2006. We met him at the Chelsea Harbour Club uh, in the summer, just before the grass court season. 
Um, so he'd moved over to the UK. I think we were maybe the first players to ever work with him in, in, in the UK. He'd come over and Judy had put us in touch with, with Louis and it's sort of like Jamie and I were very similar guys. We're quite similar personalities. You know, we were probably better players than we realised um, at that yeah. time. We were ranked like 120 in doubles. We're doing all right in, in some challengers and still trying to play singles and stuff. And, and we met with Louis and he was sitting there at the reception of the Chelsea Harbour Club. And we just sat down and had a, had a, a meeting there before we even went on court. And he said, so guys, you know, what's your goal? Almost straight away. And, and, and we were so, looking back, we were just little boys then, you know, we were so timid. You know, we're sitting at 120 in the world in doubles. And I think we looked at each other and we're like, mm, maybe top 100, you know, and it's like, and Louis, Louis literally, I think he might even have physically got up and he said, I'm not interested in working with you. And we were just like, oh my God, you know, what, what this is like, I, I've never felt so out of my comfort zone, you know? And he's like, you know, I've, I've watched videos of you play. Uh, I know the level because I've worked with, you know, the Nesters and the players at the highest level that have won slams, have been more on number one. And uh, I'm only interested in working with you. Uh, I see the potential, but I'm only interested if the goal is number one in the world, win slams, tour finals, achieve these things. And, and we were so afraid of that, you know? We're so like, oh my, it's not really a British thing, but it's definitely not a Scottish thing to talk in that way. I'm going to be yeah. this and that. And you know what I mean? We were so... But then to be able to work with someone like that who knew the level and was telling you they believed you could get to that level, suddenly it was like, you know, I can be, I can be that. I can, I can go and do that. And then that's, I think in British doubles, talk about a well-trodden path. Now there's such a path to go, well, I, I really hope that people look at me and go, well, Colin did pretty well, but it's nothing special. I, I don't think I was any special. Why can I not get to that? Why can I not go and do that? And yep. people should be looking at the current players now, you know, that are that are playing singles, doubles with, with right work. Why why can I not go and go and uh, get close to that and believe in yourself? But you need people around you as well. So I I was very fortunate in that regard with Louis. And thanks for sharing that because I I have a not that I have regrets because life is life and it and I love my life and it's taken me where it's taken me. But I stopped playing the summer of 2005 as British number one doubles player. And, and I was yeah. probably <laughs> taking that path along the lines of where you need to be 130 in the world to be British number one. Hope no one else catches you. Then you get your wild card into Wimbledon each year. Then you you rock up and do all right and win a few matches. You know, there was 100%, yeah. 100% a ceiling in place. You know, and 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 I get there's a lot said about Louis, and Louis is the impact he has had on so many of us is just off the charts. But arguably, the biggest impact he has had is exactly that. I think is the the removal of a ceiling, you know, yeah. and of a of a culture, and and I think there's so much to be learnt, and you know, I think certainly Andy has helped with that on the singles as well within British tennis. You know, he's he, he's been relatable to the other players and he's kind of dragged a few along with him as well. Whereas maybe in my era, Hemman and Rosetsky were almost untouchable. They weren't really a part of the group. So it was happening, but it wasn't really doable for anybody else. And I think it's such a, an, an important point that you make. And I think we can all relate that to various forms of our life. You know, and it's, uh, um, yeah, long may it continue because there is just an absolute line and a conveyor belt now that you guys have led. And Louis obviously been dragging that along. Um, and it's it's really yeah. impressive to see. But remember, I want to take you back to, to what you said. And, and this is 
this is probably the from a personal standpoint probably one of the biggest things that i am curious about with you because I know you said that you know you were you were struggling almost almost getting depressed with it. Tennis was wasn't going the way you wanted it to go, even though it was it was okay. You were you were doing okay probably when when you when you look at it, and then you decided to say take some time away from it. What was it that changed? And and I want to almost use a little bit that I've looked into. I, I from and how I've looked at it myself is from gift knock to Queens. And why I say that is, you know, I don't believe you're a professional tennis player, but you were playing, you know, helping gift knock, I guess your club win the Scottish cup, not, not, not an overly um, extensive global event, but you know, something that's happening in Scotland. And then 12 months later, you and Ken Skupski are beating arguably the world's best ever doubles team in the Bryans that seems it seems mad so what what was it that happened how did you go from that kind of dark place to this to this new place that allowed that to happen yeah it's good it's a good question dan i think um i think i mentioned prior when i, when I talked about my story and not being a sort of top international junior um when i first started to play professional events which was in I went to university as a 17-year-old uh, in 2001. After two years on a scholarship at Sterling, um, I remember going to Tunisia, uh, qualified and made semis of a 10K, and that was me, like, first ever ranking points. That's me, like, I'm, I, I've, I can play futures now. I went on that went on that journey. So I went back to my third, third year of a four-year degree, kept playing some futures, and at the end of that year, the university were great. They came to me and said, you can take a year out from your studies, you can still train here for, you know, without any cost. Uh, you can access Ewan McGuinness coaching, the SNC, just represent the university, you know, um, as an ambassador and, and I sort of wore the patch and tried to promote what that program was. Um, went reasonably well, took another year out and continued to progress. But that took me up to 2006, Dan, which was the summer. So Jamie and I met Louis that summer. Yes, We played Wimbledon as wild cards. Uh, in the doubles, uh, and uh, I was starting to touch challengers in singles. Like I say, I was like three, 360, 370, somewhere about there. We then went to America after, played the challengers, Binghamton, the Bronx, you remember those? Yeah. And I think the Bronx was actually my last tournament. I was in a hotel in, in New York, and I just, I, I think looking back, I was, I was young then, so I was, still would have been sort of 21, and I didn't really, I'm very grateful to Sterling Uni and to Ewan McGinn, my coach, who had still considered probably the biggest influence in my career, along with with Louis, um, but you know, Yoon wasn't able to travel with me. Um, he didn't necessarily know the levels. I didn't know the levels. So, because I wasn't a top junior, and because it was always like this is a year out from uni, I didn't have that belief that like I was going anywhere. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't think I could make it. So I felt like I was just sort of hitting a bit of a dead end. I felt like I sort of wasn't as good as everyone that was out there, bit of an inferiority thing going on. And that's why I decided like, this is it. I'm not going to make it anyway. It's time to do the sensible thing. Go back, do my, finish my fourth year, get my degree, get a job, get on that journey. And that's what I did. But it was, it was when I actually, you mentioned Gifnick. So I kept playing because I still love the sport. I went back to playing for the university. I kept playing for Gifnick, as you say, a bit of club tennis, there's a club in Glasgow. I started playing some French league, which was a turning point for me because I went over and sort of the 
uh, it would have been the spring of 2007, I think, and played some French league. And I was actually having some pretty good results, you know, still playing a decent level, still beating some good players in singles and doubles. And I thought, I've not really explored this as far as I, I, I've, not, I've only scratched the surface. I don't know how good I can be. And and uh, and my t- my chance to do it is now. I can't go back when I'm 35 and go, I want to give it a go now. Yep. It's now or never. Um, tell you quickly a, a funny story. I was at Scottish Power on a graduate program, a sort of commercial energy trading sort of graduate program. And 10 months in, I decided that that was it. I was going back. So I went to see my sort of boss and uh, told him the news, which is a little bit sort of taken aback because obviously they want their graduates to yep. progress and stay and he accidentally copied me in on an email that went to, you know, the sort of higher ups. Oh. And it said that Colin has decided to, you know, leave the, leave the company uh, and go back to pursuing a career in tennis. And then it said at the bottom, P.S., this is not a joke. <laughs> I was like, because how often do you get that, right? In a company, this guy's going back to professional tennis. So uh, that made me laugh. But I think so that was key because it was then it was then like a conscious decision. It wasn't a year out from university anymore. It was like a conscious decision. This is my career and I've given this everything I've got to find out how good I can be. So suddenly it was like I had half my chips in the first time and now I was like all in. Conscious decision. This is my career. I want to be as good as I can be. I'd already had that little bit of input from Luis. I had a, someone that I respected a lot saying you can do this. I had a, a bit of a feeling. And then it went very quickly from there. Yeah, um, it took me about a year. I started back singles and doubles. It took me about a year to get back to where I was. And I had just the most fun you can have playing doubles with Ken Skopsky, going through futures, challengers, uh, onto the main tour. Uh, it was out of control, to be honest, just just how we rode a wave of, of good vibes. I mean, we ended up, I think, in the September of 2009, we, we won Mets, our first tour event. Uh, then we went the next week and won Orléans, a one 2 challenger beating Grosjean and Olivier Passions in the final big win. Then we went straight from there and won St. Petersburg tour event. So we we, we smashed in like 650 points in three weeks. And it's like, this yeah. is just the best thing ever. We're unstoppable. And off we went on a journey. So Flemsky. I think it's key, it's key having the right. Flemsky, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. We had some hats once, got made up. Um, I think it's just, uh, it was that conscious decision that I was all in was the difference. And uh, and having some people that really uh, could believe that that believed in me and could show me the path were, were two key things. Then I I wrote a couple of notes down there because I think that it is incredibly educational what you've just said there. And and the three things that I summarised actually were awareness of standards. I, I don't think we quite appreciate how important that is, and not just standards of playing, but standards of being, standards of habits, standards of, you know, daily routines, standards of, of what you're like on the practice court, off the practice court, or all of those, all of those bits, um, that it's an all-in thing. It's not a timeline, you know. I'm a massive believer, give it a go for a year is the biggest load of nonsense ever. It never works. The give it a go yeah. a year, because a year in tennis is just boom. And the yeah. second, the second that you are timelined to something, it brings a very natural stress and anxiety because you're trying to control an outcome in such a short space of time, you know. And it just, it just isn't something that that works from a mentality standpoint. And then my last bit would be also not setting any ceilings, you know, of just like, hey, look, let's we stick to our process. 
we crack on. Let's see where this takes us, and let's not let's not ceiling it by it being like you and Jamie at one twenty in the world. Oh, we might be top hundred. You know, let's just yeah, let's see yeah. let's see where it takes us because you just don't know, and everyone else is human beings as well that are dealing with what you're dealing with. So. I I thank you for sharing that because I think that's a, I think that's a great story to share. Now I want to just go into a couple of highlights I've picked out from your career and and you 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 had a fantastic playing career. Um, I I have to ask you about you know 2013 um, was a was a big year for for British tennis because Sir Andy Murray won Wimbledon, you know, and at, at, at that point it was well he still is, but it was off the charts in terms of. Andy Murray was the 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 most famous sports person that we that we have, and and you I believe a few weeks after that went on court with him, you know, to play the Masters one thousand event in Canada. You know, I would imagine that was the hot ticket in town. Whether Andy Murray's playing singles, doubles, triples doesn't matter. People want to watch that. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite something to be honest with you. Um, I was obviously there. I was playing with Johnny Murray in 2013 because because uh, my my good friend Ross Hutchins was off the tour with uh, his his illness with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I was playing with Johnny Murray that uh, that year. Um, Johnny had obviously won Wimbledon in 2012, so I think his points had maybe dropped up, just dropped off, and I think I was slightly above him in the rankings. So the reason that's relevant, we were struggling to get into Cincinnati. Uh, excuse me, Montreal. We got into Cincy the next week, but we're struggling to get into Montreal. Yeah. It was the old on-site signings then, Dan, and I'm sort of like, oh, Johnny, you know, I think I think Andy might be up for playing. I, I think me and him can get in together. And Johnny, being the guy he is, was like, look, go for it. I'll try and find someone else. So this was 10 minutes before the 12 o'clock uh, deadline. And obviously Andy's with Ivan Lendl then, who sort of I'd, I'd spoken to a little bit through his, his relationship with Andy, but I thought this is a bit awkward because Andy was on the practice court with 10 minutes to the deadline. So I basically had to run out to his court and stop his practice with Lendl there. And I'm thinking, this guy's just going to like crush me um, and say, Andy, look, I'm not getting in the doubles. Would you be up for playing? And being the guy he is, he always wanted to try and give us a leg up. You know, he understood the situation. He was up for playing. So that, first of all, was 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 brilliant. And I think when things like that happen, how often does it end up being a good week? Because it's sort of like a, just the spur of the moment expectations are like you're relaxed let's just have a go and the other interesting thing about that was Andy lost his first his first singles match uh, okay. I don't know if you, you remember so he obviously had a bye and if memory serves he lost to Gulbis in a pretty not great performance and we were uh, we were scheduled for doubles the same day our first round against Leander Pays and Nenad Zimonic which is a pretty tough draw and I'm sitting there going I don't know how to play this like do I go to him and just say, look, Andy, if you want to pull out, don't worry. It was a bonus to get in anyway. Or if you want to play the match and just be relaxed, you know, whatever. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to do neither of those things. I'm going to go in the gym and I'm going to do the best warm up I've ever done in my life so that Andy will sort of see that I'm like, I'm on it and professional because that's the way he works, right? Yeah. He, he's no interest in playing with someone that's just going to mess around and, and not be professional. I'm just going to get in there. I'm going to show that I'm ready. And I've never seen someone play a match like Andy played that evening against Simonich and Pays. Uh, I don't know whether it was frustration from his singles coming out or what it was. It just lights out. Absolute lights out. I just had to sort of like do my bit, get my serve in, make a couple of returns. And he was just going to, I mean, it was unbelievable the way he took over the court. Because obviously, I mean, I remember Leander Pays used to stand quite close to the baseline. 
yeah. to return. And we go eye formation on the juice side and Andy's serving absolute rockets down the tee. And Leander's not, he's just, he just watching them go past him every time. I'm like, Andy, just keep doing that, mate. We're going to be okay. Right? Uh, it's just incredible. So, But that's the type of guy he was. He wanted to do it for me as much as anything or for Jamie if he was playing with his brother or for, for Delgi or for whoever he was playing with. You know, he wanted to succeed for them. And we just we just carried on from there. There was nothing to lose. We're very relaxed. We beat a lot of uh, good teams. I've not got the best memory for matches, Dan. In fact, I get a lot of stick about it. Some people remember specific points of matches. Yeah, I'd be struggling to remember exactly everyone we played that week. But I think I think we played Roger and uh, Qureshi, maybe in the quarters. And I'll tell you a last funny story. I hope Andy doesn't uh, give me a, give me a hard time for telling you. We're playing the semi-finals. This is his sense of humour, right? People think he's dry and he doesn't say anything. We're playing Linstead and Nestor on the centre court, which I find quite difficult. Sometimes these big courts to track the ball, sort of pick up the ball and play well. So I was sort of just, you know, a little tight. It's a big match, doing my thing. Robert Linstead started the match like on fire. Yeah, I think he hit like the first 10 points. He hit about six winners. We're a breakdown. Three love them. I'm thinking, this is going to be like, this is going to be tough if he keeps that up. And then he just lost it. I think he, he he lost the flight of a ball on a centre court, missed the volley and completely fell apart. I think we maybe won the next six games, 6-3. Six, Linstead takes a toilet break and Andy and I sit down and we're sort of, you know, doing our thing, towel drinking. Andy turns to me and says, surprised he needs the toilet after he just took a dump on the court. <laughs> I was like, oh man, that is just like brilliant. And he goes, do you think he's going to come back? <laughs> oh, it's like, I, just, I mean, in that moment, you know, and all the nerves just released, just yeah. relaxed into the match and, and felt so much better from there. It just what it's such a such a dry sense of humor. Sorry, Robert Linstead, if you're if you're listening to this, he, he's a good friend as well. I'm, hope, I'm sure he wouldn't mind, but it was nothing personal, just a really a really fun moment. And uh, uh, great, great memories playing with Andy, great memories playing with Andy in some Davis Cup matches as well. There's some of the highlights of my career for sure. Brilliant. And, and you meant you mentioned Ross and. You've mentioned all of the good guys helping you out, but I think this says a lot about you, Flembo, because obviously what Ross went through and the, and the whole tennis world at that time was was shocked. You know, you don't expect it for to hear that news from someone who's young, who's healthy, who, you know, all all of the kind of boxes wouldn't necessarily go towards someone dealing with such 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 a difficult medical situation. But you stuck by him at that time, you know, and when, when he came back, I know your ranking had risen and you were in, in a position, I would imagine probably Ross wasn't fully ready to play to the level that he was before, before the illness and, and, and in a world, a selfish world, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful world, the tennis world, but it is, people are taught to be selfish. Think of your own career. It's a short career. But when he came back, you, you were there, you, you jumped back on court with him as, as his doubles partner. You, did, you didn't flinch. And I just think it's important that, that we say that on record. What a, what a really cool thing I think that was for you to put your friendship and put your, your relationship before your own personal career at that point. Yeah, no, it's very kind of you to say. I, I appreciate that. Ross was, is, always will be, you know, one of my, my closest friends even though we don't see a lot of each other now, um, when we do see each other, it's like we've never been away. So I think I can understand why people might have been surprised at that. But to be honest, it was never it was never a doubt for me. We were a team. Ross was coming back to the tour. And uh, 
you know, fully believed and, and wanted it to to be successful again. So don't don't have any regrets about that at all. Ross obviously came out to 2014, but just I, I just don't think ever quite got back to feeling as comfortable as he had been on the court. Um, always prided himself on how physically, you know, fit he was, Ross, uh, um, and, and, and professional. He never gave anything away in terms of if he was feeling anything. And I just, just don't think it was quite there for him. So didn't work out, but you know, I appreciate appreciate the kind words. It was it wasn't even a consideration in my mind that we were we were a team. We were we we still are great pals, and we could go on and do something. So it's just the way it works out, you know. Maybe another time it, it could have gone even better, but I'm so proud now of what Ross has gone on to do. First of all, starting at Queens as the touring director, and now the job he's doing at ATP. So uh, yeah, that's just, that's the way it goes, and uh, just proud that he's a great yeah. friend still. Yeah, and that I I want to mention it because it's that stuff is stronger, deeper, longer than any ranking ever will be, you know, and that's the stuff yeah. that that's the stuff that we all remember. And 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 I and I think it's a it's an important it's an important thing for, for us to shine a light on. Um Flebo, yeah, I especially I, the back, backstabbing now, Dan, that goes on in the doubles uh, circuit. Oh, uh, it's, apparently it's, apparently worse now than ever, but it's no, unbelievable. It's, it's I mean and, and, and I've said it on on this on this show a few times. Netflix, if they want to show Follow the doubles guys and girls, and and get it, get it raw. And and I've said it a couple of times now. It's like Love Island on steroids. You know, it's like <laughs> you know the relationships and the changes and the this and the that. It's uh, yeah, it's it it's not good to see. You know, it really it really isn't. And that's not all pairs, of course. That's not all people. But as a, I think as a profession, I think a lot of these players are getting it very wrong actually because you know your investment in people and your investment to your values always pays dividends in my opinion you know and that's that's where the focus needs to be a little bit more um you're going to be uh commentating on on the girls Gabby Dabrowski and Aaron Routliff who I'm out here coaching in in Australia on their match later on Margaret Court Arena so hopefully I've butted you up to give some nice words but I do have a I do have a few little things I want to go through. And I have one last question before we go into our traditional a quick fire round, which I've added a little twist for you today. Um, National Academy LTA a few years ago, Sterling and Loughborough were selected. Whatever, people will have opinions. It doesn't matter what people's people will always have opinions on that, um, which is kind of irrelevant. But unfortunately, Sterling's been announced as as closing in in the net in the next few months. I know you've had various roles within that. Obviously, that was from afar a big opportunity for potentially for Scottish tennis. Um, you know, it was great to see that. Scotland. I'm I'm a northeastern England boy, and I always felt we were isolated. And, you know, so Scottish tennis is even further up. Um, why hasn't it worked up there over the last five years? Yeah, it's a, it's a a great question. One I've not really been asked, to be honest. Um, which is interesting. I think you know I I was involved during my time working at, at full time at Tennis Scotland in the sort of process and the bid to uh, win the National Academy, which we were all very excited about. You know, Tennis Scotland's in a tricky place sometimes because they're obviously the the governing body for the sport in Scotland, but also have this sort of overarching uh, LTA and 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 they're funded by the LTA along with Sport Scotland. Um, so that was the sort of strategy if you like under Simon Timson wasn't it the LTA were going down the sort of RPDCs and the two national academies and we wanted to be ambitious and we wanted to 
bid for the biggest or the highest level of investment we could get in in Scotland. Um, and we felt like, why not sort of have, have British players, you know, that hopefully will only benefit Scottish players as well. Why is it why is it not been a success? Well, it's uh, that, that, that's an interesting, it's a great question, isn't it? I mean, I think I think what I'd like to 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 sort of say on that, my personal opinion, I, I kind of disagree with the strategy, um, which I know sounds silly because I'm saying I was involved in the original bid and, and, and now the structure to sort of centralize even more with one academy in Loughborough. We we wanted to bid bid for that tennis Scotland, like I say, to be as ambitious as I can. But personally, I think there should be more opportunity more more i think we went for a place where there was maybe 50 odd programs getting a very small bit of funding so spreading the jam way too thin and then it was like let's do these national academies and we don't want finance to be a barrier to the to the younger up and coming juniors we want a pro style environment uh, personally i think there should be maybe six eight you know regional centers that encompass like full-time players down into your juniors, um, you know, funding a, a good coach in in, in those, uh, maybe maybe some assistant coaching that needs to be done, like a good physical trainer, and and not a load more than that. Maybe some access to some more specialised people. I think the national academies was personally, I think it was too much too soon at the ages the players were coming in to have uh, obviously coaching, to have SNC, to have physio, to have nutrition, to have psychology, to have performance lifestyle support to have a lot of it was like the kids weren't ready to to sort of take that on board this isn't really answering your question necessarily Dan this is more a philosophical thing so I I would like to see it where there's more programs in in Great Britain you mentioned like the northeast northwest have one in Scotland have some in the midlands have you know a a few down south as well where there's opportunities for full-time players down to your best juniors all the way down to like you know, you're under 14s, under 12s to, to gain access and, and have that sort of training environment that I think can be so inspirational. Um, Sterling, I think, to answer specifically your question, why it didn't quite work out, I think it was probably geographically too too much of a challenge and maybe not enough, probably didn't come at the right time for, for Scotland, maybe not enough Scottish players. And it was obviously based at Stirling University where there is quite a, quite a demand on the facility that's there. The six indoor courts, uh, we had access to some outdoor courts, but no outdoor courts on site. So those six courts were just like, I mean, the pressure on them, you know, amongst yep. uh, the National Academy, the Tennis Scotland programmes, amongst the university programmes, any pay and play, there was morsels of that. Um, I think that was a real challenge of continuing to grow the programme in any meaningful way and attract players geographically to to that. My big hope, Dan, is that Tennis Scotland and Scottish Tennis, which I'm very passionate about, as I'm British Tennis, but being a Scot, comes out in a stronger place from it. So obviously the National Academy is leaving, but I hope that the LTA are able to support a programme in Scotland whereby I think there's a really good core of players now. You know, Aidan McHugh, Ewan Lumsden, uh, Jacob Fernley, Hamish Stewart, um, Connor Thompson... Apologies if I forget anyone. Ali Collins, Maya Lumsden, uh, Anna Brogan, you know, full-time Scottish players to, to have a programme there that then juniors can feed off, that then, uh, you know, younger juniors can feed off. Other players from Northern England or wherever could come in and access it. I hope that there could be some kind of support for a really structured programme and that it will be in a better place post-National Academy than it was pre-National Academy. Yeah. But um, 
yeah, maybe just not the right time, maybe not quite the right facility. Um, personally, I think the, the, the philosophy of the programme could have been different, but it was a good experience. It was a real eye-opener for me to be involved. Um, and I'm sure we could talk about it all day, Dan, to be honest. Absolutely. No, we could. And the word that comes back to me, I, I like to talk, I, I'm obviously out of the British system. I have been for 14 years, but I'm still very passionate about it. You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm British and British tennis is in my heart and, uh, I've got a lot of friends and a lot of great people that are working within British tennis. But I always go back to a conversation. If anyone ever gets the chance, and I'm sure you do, to speak to Dan Evans on tennis, it's like a whirlwind. You know, Evo comes in yeah. and he gives a little whirlwind. And look, and even if Evo's listening to this, I don't mind because there's always some nice bones in it, you know, that you can pick out. And I had a big conversation with him at US Open, and it really stuck with me, actually, because he... He talks a lot about incentive. You know, he's a competitor, but ultimately we're in a very competitive environment. You know, we're going against people that are competing for their lives. You know, this is the, the sport. That's what the sport's about. And he was saying, and he's talking more at the at the very top level within that system, but I think this can filter down as he's just pretty simplistic on his opinions that just, no, just you have three coaches in let's say in the men's department, three coaches in the women's department, and if they produce a top hundred player, their their salary goes from sixty grand to a hundred grand, and if then another another player makes in the top hundred, then it goes from a hundred to one hundred and thirty, and it's up to those three coaches and their fitness team, whatever it is, to just get it done, get it done, and and obviously getting it done will require performance analytics it will require sports science departments it will require if if needed you know and 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 i think if there is a little bit more of that which is kind of i've been in spain 14 years that's kind of what's in place it's kind of incentive based in spain because it's all private academies you know if you don't do a good job you don't have any players so you better do a bloody yeah. good you better do a bloody good job you know and, and i i think just just while you're talking i think that like the the lt is obviously a very well funded uh, governing body and I think the uh, the unfortunate thing about that and the way that is currently run is that entrepreneurship is stifled yes you know in all different ways so be that be that I think coaches be that uh, tournament organizers be you know whatever it might be I I, I would love to see a, a scenario where I talk about six to eight programs I don't think they have to be run by the LTA I think right now, because all tournaments and all performance training programs are run through the LTA, it stifles entrepreneurship and people with the real passion that want to go and do something. It's then like, from a coach's point of view, like players will then move to the LTA program and they're sort of like, to get the wind taken out their sails a bit. Italy is an unbelievable model, isn't it? You go you go to an Italian challenger and it's, it's, it's a business. It's a club that's passionate about it and they're attracting local sponsors they're putting the whole thing on. All our tournaments are sort of run by the LTA. So I think that's exactly what you're describing, a bonus system that incentivizes entrepreneurs, if you want to call them that, or passionate people to run a tournament, to run a program, to run a squad. 100%. To, I think I think that would be a, that would be such a healthy environment. I couldn't do what I've done the last 14 years in Spain and and created the opportunities for myself, but also players and coaches around around yeah. me in the UK and that that's 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 real that's that's and, and that and that, that's a real shame i think you know you that's a loss to british tennis i know you still do a lot for british tennis dan because you have a lot of british players that come and you you've done coach education you've done it so it's great but 
it's a shame that your program isn't in Great Britain and you aren't able to sort of be incentivized, part funded, part supported. If you can do this, we'll give you a little bit towards it. You you could have tournaments going on. You could have you know you're you're a perfect example of that entrepreneurship that you've not been able to do it in Britain. Yeah. So Flembo, I want a quick fire. Uh, and if you've listened to to the pod, you'll know we have quick fire. I'm not going to make it quite as easy for you as as that. I've got I've got two sections of the quick fire, and the first section is called the future. I'm going to say something after the future, and you're going to give me a quick fire answer on that. So we've got the okay. future for British tennis. Bright. I think I think at the highest level, I think Bright, uh, Emma, really promising what I've seen um, here, and and Jack Draper. I think they have the ability to be the leading lights, and and hopefully there'll be some some players uh, coming along with them. For Scottish tennis, uh, I think Bright as well. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier the core of players, both on uh, men's and women's. Um, really excited to see how they do over the next few years. And again, I, I think there's a lot of work, good work going on now at the. The, the very younger ages. So I think we're starting to trend in the right direction. And Charlie Robertson winning his first round here in Melbourne yesterday is a nice, a a nice, nice point. Yeah, for phenomenal. That. For Andy Murray? Uncertain, I think. Um, and I, I sit here as a uh, as a friend now, just uh, hope that from now until whenever he 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 decides that uh, enough's enough, that he... he um, can find the level he wants to be playing and, and the enjoyment off the back of that. But at the moment, it seems a little uncertain. And for Colin Fleming? Uh, the future is spending a lot of time with my kids, hopefully. Uh, that's the number one goal for me. But the future is bright. You know, hopefully um, on the broadcast side, uh, things starting to change on, in the in the UK. Obviously, Sky coming back on, on board. Uh, um, I've got to work hard to try and get involved with with that and uh, continue to to love what I'm doing, covering the sport. So uh, the future is good, and the future hopefully involves uh, as much time as possible with my family. And for tennis, because we're hearing strong stories of a, a new tour being brought together, you know, that's starting to kind of leak out here in, in Australia. So what does the future look like for, for tennis as an industry? The future at the professional level, I think the future looks really, really good. Um, I have to say, uh, I think on men's and, and women's side, I think there's so many exciting stars come through. There's always going to be discussions about the structure of our sport. I think that's the in vogue sort of thing, isn't it? With everything that's happening in, in golf and, and you know, everyone wants to seem to want to follow the Formula One model of getting people together and whatever it is, you've got to have the raw materials. And I think tennis has got it. Um, I think the future is very, very bright and it's very exciting. And for something that's close to my heart and and your heart, the future for doubles. Wow. Uncertain as well, I think. Uncertain. At the professional level, again, I'm referring to by that. Doubles is always going to be healthy at a club level, recreational level, isn't it? People love it. It's so social. I think uh, at the professional level, I would like to see it promoted more. I'd like to see it covered more, but um, I'd like to see more top players playing. But until those kind of things happen, uh, I'm I'm a little uh, unsure about how it continues to go from from strength to strength. And moving into our traditional quick fire round, your favourite Grand Slam. I'm sitting here employed by Tennis Australia 
for two weeks. So <laughs> I feel I feel a little bit uh, awkward answering that one. It's an but emotional I'm go question. Like, I'm going to remove myself from that. My personal favorite Grand Slam is the U.S. Open. Your favorite doubles partner. Wow. Um, Get off that fence. You want me to pick one? I want you off the fence, mate. I want you off. This is, you know, I don't want any fence stuff here. I don't want any diplomatic political stuff. I want your favorite doubles partner. Whoever doesn't get picked can deal with it. Thicken their skin up. My favorite doubles, favorite doubles partner was Ross Hutchins. Loved playing with all the guys, Dan, but Ross for sure. The the winner of the Australian Open men's and women's singles this year. Your pick. Where we're going into week two. Who's coming out of it? I'm going to go for Coco Golf. Yep, I like that call. And I'm going and I'm going to go for. I think it's Yannick Sinner's time. Yannick Sinner's only chance, Flembo, is by wearing on-court glasses when he plays against Novak Djokovic. I saw a story today. Novak Djokovic has not lost in 10 years in Australia, apart from to two players who both were wearing on-court glasses in Chung and Istaman. These only That's two incredible. glasses. So Yannick Sinner needs to get used to wearing on-court glasses if he's going to get past Novak Djokovic. Yeah. I think the level he played down at the end of last year was oh. just incredible. But that was it was indoors. So that's what I'm interested to see. Can he produce that same level in the latter stages here outdoors? But looks, I think he's I think he he's ready. Strong. A little quiz question. How many of your former partners have been on control the controllables? And who <laughs> and and who are they? You might be surprised at this this answer. Ross has been on. Yes, so, uh, so that's one. <laughs> um, I think has Ken been on? Two. Yeah, yeah, former LSU Tiger. You must have had him on. He's my roommate. Um, He's my roommate for a year or two. Johnny Maz must have been on. First ever episode. There you go. Him and Freddie Nielsen. Yeah, very nice. Uh, struggling to remember who else I played doubles with now. Like played doubles with them. Oh, jeez. I don't know. I'm 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 going to go for based on I've got three. I'm going to add a couple and say five. It's eight. What? It's <laughs> How many eight. people did I play with? <laughs> Andy Murray, Jamie Murray, Johnny Murray, Ross Hutchins, Ken Skupski, Dom Inglot, Rohan Bapana, and Eric Buterak. Very nice. Just to go back to what we said at the start, you really are running out of people. That's why I'm on. Is the, is the... <laughs> it's, hey, this is so, so. There we go. Um, but you did you did preempt that a few minutes ago when you said you're not very good at remembering matches. So I'll let you off that. Um, forehand or backhand? Backhand. Roger or Rafa? Oh, Rafa. Andy or Jamie? <laughs> uh... Well, Jamie likes to play golf with me, so I'm going to go Jamie. One rule change you would have in tennis? Uh, get rid of the shot clock. Singles or doubles? <sighs> Good question. Right now, as I sit here, I would rather play singles. Well, I but I love doubles as well. It's a, it's a big court. Oh, it's a big court. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love the game. Love the uh, game. I, I love the game in half a court, I think, nowadays. Um, 
Australian Open 2024 has 17 men and nine women in the singles draw who were US college players. And they have 44 men and 16 women in the doubles. It's becoming a legit pathway into tennis. There's now the NIL where players can get paid to play. Is this now the the true established pathway into the sport outside of the generational talents? I thought you were going to ask me to name them all for a second. There, I was uh, I was panicking. No, absolutely no, I, I, panicking. I, I gave up on that a few minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's a it's a legitimate pathway. Of course, it is. And and I think just to go back to what we're seeing, my own journey, Stirling University, entrepreneurship programs in the UK. Why could it not be a, a, a legitimate pathway there still to have full-time players that are able to continue a bit of education and grow the whole health of the sport? But um, of course, yeah, absolutely a legitimate pathway. What does control the controllables mean to you? Well, it means, you know, it does what it says on the tin in many ways. It means controlling the things that you are able to control and influence and not worrying about external factors, you know, what people think of you, um, how people perceive you. It's making sure that you are true to yourself and uh, prioritize and do the best you can in the things that matter to you and the things that are important to you and not worrying about external factors. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? You are responsible for bringing them on before you fire out some... You've got to give me, got to give me a framework here, yeah. So I've got to get them on. You pass the baton. Depends when you're releasing it. Why don't you try and get Andre Sa? Get a Tennis Australia perspective. I could have a chat with Andre. Yeah, well, he. my first question is, do you remember playing me in 2004 Barcelona Challenger in, in, in doubles? Because I managed to get a win over him, so I like this one. I'll definitely get him on there. <laughs> I, like, I like this one. Brilliant. Flembo, you've been a star, mate. I loved it. And... Like genuinely could chat for hours with you, mate. And and well done on on all you're doing. You do, you're doing a great job. And uh, let's yeah, hopefully this Melbourne dream continues for us. And if it does, let's try and grab some dinner over the next few days as well. Cheers, mate. Absolute pleasure, Dan. And listen, all the best here in Melbourne. Hope the girls do amazing. Go all the way and uh, keep up all your great work with the the podcast and your coaching and and the academy. Everything you're doing is superb. So thank you. And. Colin is here with me in Melbourne. We didn't do it face-to-face. -face. Maybe it's a, a technology thing that I need to sort out to do that, but I find it a little easier that we do these talks on videos, video chat until I get the relevant technology. But we could have talked for hours, and a proper tennis man, someone who, who, who shares my passion for the sport, and he really does do a great job. You know, if you, you might have seen him on court interviewing players during the Australian Open. Um, he's got that Scottish voice, fantastic voice that comes through, and his intelligence of the game also comes through as as, as his warmth for people does as well. So I loved, loved having him on. And I just want to, before I, I head off, it's, it's late here in Melbourne, and I just want to, I guess, share a little bit with you because that tomorrow is is a big day for for myself and the players that I am here working with, Gabriela Dabrowski and Aaron Routliff, have, as they have continued their great vein of form into 2024 as they've moved into the quarterfinals here in Australia. 
And also Gabby, alongside her partner, Nate Lamons, have moved into the quarterfinals of the mixed doubles. And they, they play both of those matches tomorrow. Now, it's often not talked about doubles. And this is certainly not a complaint. It's just the, the reality of the sport that we quite often don't see. It's it's long hours, you know. We, we're, we're, we're there for 12, 13, 14 hours every day. And that's just for for one match. You know, by the time you get there, you're, you're going to maybe scout potential opponents in the next round. You're making sure that, the warm-up is done correctly. You're making sure everything is in place. The plan is in place. And then the match finishes. And that's happened this evening, actually. The match finished, the mixed doubles match finished at 8.30 p.m. And we only left the tennis about an hour ago, you know, because you come off the court, the the girls and, and boys will have their press that they have to do. Obviously, you're then eating your food and then you start to scout and get real detailed plan for the next day. As in our case, it's a next day match. Uh, you're making sure that you're fully fueled, having your massages, ice baths, taking care of your body. If there's any extra treatment that needs to be done, the rackets are in to get re-strung for the next day. And it's I love it. it it's, there's a real buzz to it. But sometimes I think we forget how much actually goes in with these top professional players to make sure that they are in peak performance. And yeah, I it's I'll be up probably an extra couple of hours now to make sure that the the game plan is watertight. We feel really clear. And then a few hours later the alarm will go to to get on site. And as a coach, I like to get on site early as well. I like to do a little work workout in the morning. You know, make sure any nervous energy is out. Uh, I'm starting to feel clear-minded, making sure that all tickets are taken care of for the players, making sure their rackets are picked up and ready and stenciled, re-gripped and ready to go. And then bringing little notes together for them as they go onto the practice court to warm up and obviously keeping that nice relaxed feel before the final preparations are done and they step out onto the biggest stage, you know, which here at the Australian Open, they'll play on Margaret Court Arena tomorrow. And it is one of the biggest stages you can play in the sport. And it's it's exciting, but I'm sure it's also nerve-wracking for these players as well. You know, the, there's big stakes at hand and our job as coaches is to make sure that there's no stone unturned, that they've got the absolute preparation on point. They know what they're doing. It's about them then going and committing, performing and trying to embrace whatever challenge comes their way, uh, which there's no doubt there will be some challenges for all players that are out there. And I feel very privileged to be a part of it. And I just thought I'd maybe share that as I'm living that moment right now uh, with you guys and wherever you are in the world, wherever you're watching uh, enjoy the remainder of the Australian Open. Please don't forget, check the link in the show notes if you feel we deserve your vote for Best Racket Sports Podcast of the Year. And we will be coming to you in the coming days with more amazing episodes from Control the Controllables. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs> <laughs>